Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors, and welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance. I'm your host, Dr. Alan, and it is a pleasure being with you today as we unlock the formula for public financing for commercial real estate. Atif Carter, founder of Redist, a venture-backed fintech company focused on real estate incentives and Amanet Properties, a development company focusing on the renovation of historic real estate in New Jersey. Previously, he was at Extel Development, where he was an associate on the acquisitions and development teams for deals across the United States and Canada. And I hope I got all of those names pronounced correctly. But those are admirable efforts, Alan. <laughs> admirable. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your generosity there. Well, Atif, tell us about a memorable experience from your formative years that helped you to be the person that you are today. Sure, absolutely. I think there are a number that I could talk about. The one that probably is the most formative is one that I recognize or understand more from the stories that are told as opposed to my own experience. That was emigrating to the United States at the age of two. So my family came to the United States during the Iran-Iraq War. That was 1982 and classic American story. Family, three kids, three suitcases, 3,000 bucks, and arrived in Hackensack, New Jersey. The day that we arrived was Halloween. And as you could imagine, there was a lot of confusion that my brother and sister had on their first day of school when everyone came to school in costumes. Pretty soon, someone explained it to them and they figured out what was going on. But I think that this opportunity to literally completely transform the life that my family had in Bahrain which is a country right next to Iran and Iraq, was one that completely set us on the path to where we are today. So, I mean, like fast forward over the course of those 25 to 30 years or so, 35 years, <laughs> if we can do math. At this point now, for myself and my siblings, it's nine Ivy League degrees. All of us are C-suite execs. And uh, we did it. We did the whole thing that is the American dream. And I think that any other story that I could tell would somehow arc back to that reality of persistence and perseverance that comes from an experience like that. Yeah, that, uh, you know, I think we negate a lot of times, I think, the immigrant experiences here in the United States and forget how rich that has really made the United States as a nation. And, you know, oftentimes I think we think, oh, that ended back in the early 1900s when, in fact, it is still a process that's going on and that is still enriching the nation in many, many different and varied ways. I think like one example that Alan, that probably many people might connect to is Brooklyn is really known for its Italian food, its Italian community. That's been a huge part of Brooklyn's history for over a century. And I think when you look back at history and see how the United States treated Italian immigrants when they came to the United States, it's not that dissimilar to the way that people that look like me are often treated when we come to the United States now. But I mean, I don't think you could separate the Italian experience from the Brooklyn experience now. Those are intrinsically intertwined, intertwined with each other. And I think people that are observant and are students of history can notice the same story. It's just a different chapter. And that's what I think 
is hopefully going to allow for us to continue being open and welcoming to people that are just a little different than the rest. <laughs> so. Yeah, it would be nice if we could learn from our history because, yeah, it is. it wasn't just the Italians. It was the Irish before them that were mistreated. and Russians, uh, Eastern and European Jews, Russians, many. And absolutely, just go on down the line. And, well, we just keep on repeating <laughs> that history. <laughs> and yet the immigrants keep coming and uh, continue to enrich our culture and our nation because of those experiences. Maybe someday we'll learn. Maybe we can... <laughs> open our hearts and minds a little bit better. Well, let's get into real estate here, particularly commercial real estate, and explain to us, first of all, how it is that traditional deals are capitalized and what is the problem with the traditional means. So as a real estate developer, I've had the opportunity to work at huge companies like Xtel Development in New York City, just starting my own firm, like Alan mentioned, Amanath Properties. I've worked on the private sector and also in the public sector as a city planning commissioner for the city of Hoboken, which is a quite fast growing and very wealthy city in New Jersey. And what I can tell you is that the normal way, the typical way that real estate deals work, and I'm sure many of your listeners will know this, it's a combination of debt and equity. And the issue is there are often deals, there are often markets where the combination of debt and equity isn't sufficient to actually get a deal done, even though there might be a very important and very relevant need for a apartment building or for a factory or for an office building to be built. And those traditional means aren't enough. So the United States, since Reconstruction, so right after the Civil War, has gone along the path of developing and funding this hypothesis. And this is the hypothesis, is that public taxpayer-funded resources, so our taxpayer dollars every single year, should be used to fund private economic activity that delivers a public social good. That is the thesis. And the United States has now grown to, at various levels of government, encouraging that to the tune of $100 billion every single year. That's in terms of programs that many of our listeners are probably familiar with. So many types of tax credits, tax abatement programs, grants, low interest financing, rebates, all the way to the most unusual that I would say would be things like zoning bonuses. So those are particularly in high cost markets. Those are relevant like New York City. So that whole system is what is an alternative world of financing that people, whether you're at the most sophisticated firms like the one I was at, or if you're an entrepreneur like I was also, or you're on the public sector side as a city planning commissioner, there is very little information, very little understanding that, that people in all of these roles have of all these different opportunities. And oftentimes it's very ad hoc. The way of understanding it's incredibly fragmented. And there's very little of like an overall purview of this system in order to make the best use for it on the deals that you could potentially pursue. So that's the way that it's typically done, debt and equity, and the way that it could be done if the system was done well. It's basically taking advantage of alternate financing methods. So I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that there are a lot of public financing opportunities out there, but it's extraordinarily fragmented because there's a number of different governmental departments and levels within departments that are involved in that process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So just so we can understand this a little bit better, can you just kind of give us an example of how a public financing deal can potentially come together? So the idea of public financing is that it does one of a number of different things. The first thing that it can do is 
reduce the cost of construction. And by reducing the cost, that means that it is doing one of two things. It is either replacing equity that's necessary on a deal or supplementing the market rate debt that you're getting. So that's reducing the cost of the deal. The second thing that it can do is increase the revenues associated with the deal. So for example, supplementing the rents that you are able to get for a particular project. And the third thing that public financing can do is reduce your operating expenses. Those are often things such as specialty agreements with utilities in order to get lower operating costs. Those are the three mechanisms by which a deal can be improved. So reducing the cost, the capitalization, increasing the revenue or decreasing the operating costs. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, those are, of course, the three primary ways that any deal is going to work. But thinking of those in terms of public funding, I don't really think of those. I mean, I think of, you know, there is supplemental rental programs. I'm aware of those and aware of some construction things. And then the one thing I really have never really thought about is lowering the operating cost uh, through various different public sources there. Well, how can we be more efficient about taking advantage of these various different opportunities? Yeah, I think that's a really important question that I and my team, there are eight great team members are located at Columbia Startup Lab in New York. And for us, we've been asking ourselves that question. And we have had about 250 companies that have participated in our pilot program and or are part of the paid early access program for the product. And for us, we see the process of doing what you described, which is making better use of this financing based in two different things. Number one is the idea of finding and the identification of what actually you're eligible for and then determining what is useful to you based on your particular building, your particular strategy. That's what we call the find aspect of this value proposition. And the second part of it is the use portion of this value proposition. So sure, that's great that you've identified the 40 programs that you're eligible for, but now let's figure out what we're doing with that information. So namely, the, the use part of the value proposition is being able to apply for incentives more efficiently. And then it's being able to receive syndicated tax credit dollars. And both of those processes are part of the vertical integration of finding and using. And those individually on their own are also wildly frustrating aspects of the entire process. And through our paid early access program customers, we are getting better and better at understanding those pieces in order to form an integrated solution for our customers going forward. We'll be right back after a brief announcement. Are you a busy professional, passionate about the work of your calling, yet realize that even though you love what you are doing, you're exchanging your time for money? You know that if you were to lose the ability to exchange time for money, your financial well-being will be in jeopardy. If you can relate, I have great news. Steve Tucker Capital is an investment company designed for professionals to develop financial independence built on solid passive real estate investments. Remove the anxiety of an uncertain financial future and go to steedtucker.com. Get your free one-page 10-step guide to passive real estate investing. So you have put together a process that can be applied over and over again, essentially, from one company to another company and from one acquisition to another acquisition. 
break that down a little bit more for us and uh, give us an idea of how that can actually work. Sure. So the mode by which one would engage with the system is by geographic address, because that is the key means by which people in our industry understand what we do. It's the address, or alternatively, it's the block and lot, or it's the tax lot identifier. Those are the three means by which someone can identify the geographic location of a property and then start their analysis. So whether you worked at a, a really large firm like me at Extel or like a tiny little shop on their own, that's the way that we understand the physical infrastructure around us. So we chose to use it the same way. So it's geographic-based search. We do understand that there is a strong desire, particularly amongst real estate brokers and investors, as opposed to developers, to want to understand the potential of public financing rather than a bottom-up approach by geographic address a top-down approach by region or by area. And that's essentially what we're thinking of is, we call it internally a reverse lookup. And that is something that we are And so if I understand you correctly, what you are attempting to do is to identify the most likely geographic areas. And once those are identified area-wide, then you, you go down to the property areas. I would say the other way around. We're actually doing the property level first, and then we're now identifying the best way to do it in reverse, which is to say if you are, Alan, you have a fund, and you're looking to find operating partners in high growth Sunbelt states. So North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, Alabama, everyone knows what they are, Texas and Florida. So you are quite interested in knowing where are their combinations of opportunity zones? Where are there historic downtowns where we can use historic tax credits? Where are there other opportunities for reducing our operating costs through partnerships with utilities, for example? So when you start defining what it is that you're looking for and the regions that you want, what we see as our next iteration is the top-down approach for us to start saying, hey, rather than like willy-nilly looking across the entire swath of North Carolina, having no clue what to do, there's actually certain parts that you should be focusing in on when you're looking for operating partners and you're looking for deals to execute on your funds mandate. That's the way that we see this being useful from that top-down approach. So how... Are you pulling all of this together to make it a useful process, an inst uh, a useful instrument, instrument, uh, useful tool, however you want to call that? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question. And I think in order to appreciate what it is, it's important to understand what is the way that technology companies or industry have been accessing data and why that is so different than a new generation of startups like Redist is a part of. So older tech startups, which is funny to call it old because that means like five years ago, older technology companies in our industry have very much relied on something called a county registrar. So a county registrar in every single county in the United States is the location where two particular types of information are stored. One is transaction information. So anytime there's a new deed recorded. And then the second one is liens. So mortgages placed on properties. And those two sources of information are essentially what populate many of the early databases that people can think of in our industry, like Reonomy, Rees, Coaster. That's basically the core place where all that information comes from. 
The challenge then is how do you develop an engineering system to be able to ingest all of that data? Because Hudson County, New Jersey treats their information very different than say, Alamance County in Western North Carolina does. So how do you set up a system that can do that in an efficient way and ingest data again and again and again and again? Because there's new information put in every single, essentially every single hour, if not every single minute. So that is the big challenge and that's the source of information. But that means that you're limited to essentially those two sources of information as the means of the data that you are providing your customers. Fine. That's great. That accomplished a lot right there in the first generation for developers like me. But I think that there is a second generation of companies that are now looking at alternative sources of information in order to supplement those. And for a company like Redist, it's about understanding where this information exists. So ostensibly, it's federal, state, local agencies that are responsible for the distribution of these incentives, and it's the way that they store it. So some of the most sophisticated, I would say, are agencies that actually have smart maps, which are called GIS, Global Information Systems, maps that are already done in a way that that information can be ingested very easily. The most unsophisticated are the ones that require you to go to their office and get a hard copy of the information that is required or is about this and they describe this particular incentive and may also have a map that is drawn in marker on a printout of the area. So as you can imagine, if we're attempting to create a platform that is useful from New York City to San Francisco, that system doesn't work. So the process of getting to that value proposition of find and find and use, it's a lot about collecting, cleaning, and then curating data of all different types. So I think that the engineering process here is also a lot about the system, the structure by which we ingest the data, similar to that first generation, but there is a lot more difficulty in terms of understanding the breadth and depth of stuff that you're collecting is so wildly different than the breadth and depth of things that you'd be collecting if you were a first-generation company. So the term that uh, folks use to describe this in San Francisco, Silicon Valley speak, it's called non-traditional data sets. Yes, very much so. So your company has developed or you are developing the software to manage all that? Has developed. So we are in 18 states and we are very excited to be in all 52 because we're considering Puerto Rico and D.C. states, whatever, states. So 52, and we're working our way to the, the finish line and all of that. Okay, well, tell our viewers and listeners how they can take advantage of what you all have developed and put together. Absolutely. I think the best things to do would be to check us out on what we're, what we're doing. So our website is redist.us, R-E-D-I-S-T.us. And we also are pretty active with lots of really valuable information that we share on our LinkedIn, which is the, the Redist company LinkedIn. Those are two really great resources to check out. And you can sign up for our mailing list. Right now, we are in a, a closed early access program. So if folks express their interest, then we'll reach out to them when we are now like selling publicly, which will be in the middle of next year. And the other one, if you're interested more in some of the stories of our early access program users and other folks like that, we actually have a podcast that we co-produce with the really famous design firm, Michael Graves architecture and design. So Redis co-produces it with them. I'm the host. It's called American Building. So you can just check out that 
podcast is called AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Tons of really great episodes, including with uh, Marianne Gilmartin, who's the former CEO for City Ratner. It's a huge residential REIT. She's a friend of mine. She's really awesome. So those are all the different avenues to engage with us as we are getting ready to open the doors to everyone that's interested in engaging. Well, excellent. We're going to have to do that. Well, what's going on currently with federal regulations and what is it that we as investors need to know about current federal regulations? So I can say this is that if I'm like, I'm probably like a lot of your listeners, but I'm kind of up to here with all the drama from Capitol Hill. At some point, I feel like my nieces and nephews in middle school might be more mature than the folks that are <laughs> on Capitol Hill <laughs> and the way they communicate with each other. But all of that aside, I think that it's important to recognize that we as an industry are at just at the cusp of probably one of the biggest changes to way that federal government interacts with our industry from an incentive perspective. So partly on the Build Back Better plan, and if that reconciliation budget passes, and then in subsequent legislation, which has already been keyed up by both Republican and Democratic and independent senators, there are a lot of efforts that are being made to encourage housing that is accessible to all types of people. I'm not necessarily just saying capital A, big government affordable. I mean, many variations of that and also energy efficient commercial buildings and, uh, and private homes. And the means for doing all of that is largely through tax credits and a new slew of tax credits. So we've counted at least eight new tax credits announced this year alone that at the federal level that are related to housing for middle-class folks. I'm sure many like your listeners, like my family, and then literally dozens and dozens of tax credits associated with increasing the energy efficiency of buildings. So it's important to recognize that despite all the noise and all the drama of what's happening in Capitol Hill, we are on a very important watershed point in our industries history in terms of its relationship with incentives and the federal government. Huge opportunity for developers, particularly and investors, particularly in high cost markets like New York, New Jersey are very high cost. And before long, North Carolina is going to be a very high cost state too. Yeah, that's moving in that direction for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty rapidly, actually. So yeah, so it, just so much information. And, you know, we only have so much time in any day to keep track of all of that. And yet it's critical and it's important and it can make so much difference in terms of uh, the viability of, of any particular project. Well, I have one last question for you before we close out here. And that is uh, share with us one of your most difficult setbacks in life. How did you come through that time? And what did you learn from that experience? I would say this. So for Redist, we've raised two and a half million dollars in venture capital financing. And I think that's an important milestone on its own, because I think once you reach certain levels, I think statistically, the likelihood to be a dumpster fire of a company reduces precipitously. So, I mean, there's still WeWork, there's still examples in Theranos like that. But I think that our likelihood of achieving success as a company has grown quite a bit because of these successful financing rounds. That said, I would offer this as probably one of the biggest challenges that we've had. So raising money for my real estate development business amount of properties in the grand scheme of things was relatively straightforward because I had the educational pedigree, the work pedigree, and I know a lot about the market that I work in, which is Hudson County, New Jersey. So relatively straightforward to capitalize my deals. I think that oftentimes real estate investors consider themselves to be very conservative 
But in fact, though, they are very cavalier because taking a chance on someone on their first deal, that takes a lot of guts to be able to do. I think that on the other side of it, raising two and a half million dollars for Redist made me realize that oftentimes venture capital investors consider themselves very cavalier, very cutting edge, very pioneering, when in fact they are not. They're actually very much pattern finding and looking to see if the certain boxes are checked. I'm just going to be straightforward. Some of the listeners may not like this, but there is a very certain type of person that is the one that is funded in venture capital. It's typically a relatively young white male who is a little awkward and went to Stanford. That is the, that is the picture of who gets funded in venture capital startups. And I'm none of those. So except being male. And for us, we found that there were often things that were said in sort of encoded ways that made us spend a lot of time that we shouldn't have been spending and spin a lot of wheels that we shouldn't have been spending. So that was a very big challenge. But I think more importantly, I want to describe for any folks that are looking to raise money for their own innovative companies, what we did, we turned the tables. And what we said after about halfway through this process is whenever we engage with a venture capital company, whether through an introduction or someone that reached out to us, I said very plainly to them, these are the reasons why other venture capital firms have said no to us. And here are our responses to each of those issues. I want to save you the time and save me the time of this conversation. If these apply to any of you, I totally respect that. Good luck in your search for companies to invest in. And I think we're going to move on to somebody else. And when we found that being that cavalier, that direct, it was the first conversation that we had that we realized that we unlocked something that was going to save us a lot of time, a lot of effort. And what it was, was that the very first in venture capital investor that we spoke to had said to us when we did meet, he said, I have been doing this for five years. I probably talked to hundreds of startup founders and I have never seen someone do something like that. And I was like, okay, God, he's not going to invest. Let's move on. Okay. But instead, what he said was that that is the coolest thing I have ever seen someone do. And I think it's probably emblematic of the type of leader that you are to the point, let's get down to business and let's get something done. And they ended up being our very first venture capital investors that Shadow Ventures based in Georgia in Atlanta. So I think that will be the difficulty that we faced. And that's the way that we approach this, turn the tables, see how you can be in the power position as opposed to in the receiving position of something you may not be happy with. Well, it makes total and complete sense, but it's difficult to be that transparent and that uh, straightforward and, and yeah. honest. But <laughs> an excellent example there for all of us really to follow. And what a great story there. So Atif, what a delight it has been to be with you today. Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance brought to you by Steed Talker Capital a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at steedtalker.com.